Hi everybody, Liam here. Before we get started, I just want to say I hope all of you are doing your best to stay safe. Also, huge thanks to all the people who are working through this coronavirus crisis to uh, to keep us all healthy. I'm talking about folks who work in grocery stores, nurses, doctors, folks at East Bay Mud, uh, you name it. If you are out there working right now, thank you on behalf of myself and all of us who depend on you. So, yeah, this pandemic is hitting all of us in a lot of different ways. And uh, look, the challenges that I'm facing personally are really minor compared to a lot of other folks who are dealing with sickness or homelessness or childcare issues. But one of the ways it's affecting me is that I can't give my boat tours right now, which is unfortunate because taking people out on the bay and telling stories about local history is one of the ways I earn a living. But um, beyond the money, I just really like being out there on the water. It's so beautiful and peaceful and the views just never, never get old. So I thought since I can't actually be out there right now, I could at least do an episode talking about the Bay, the history of the Bay. And the first person I thought of to interview about that was Chris Carlson. Like me, Chris also gives historical boat tours, but that's not the only reason why right now is an appropriate time to have him on the show. First, he's been working for years and years on a book that just came out all about local history and uh, the timing couldn't be worse. Most authors have to try really hard to sell their books, and a big way they do that is by having events at bookstores and being on panels at book festivals and things like that. Now that everything is canceled, it's a lot harder to promote a new book, and I think this one is worth reading. So yeah, hopefully this show helps get the word out. Um, Oh, right. His book is called Hidden San Francisco, a guide to lost landscapes, unsung heroes, and radical histories. Wait, I already know what you're thinking. A book about San Francisco on East Bay yesterday? Well, Chris did go to Oakland Tech. Does that help? But seriously, don't worry, folks. This book also talks quite a bit about the Bay and uh, Ohlone history. And yes, there are even some parts about the East Bay. And uh, those are the topics we'll be focusing on today. Well, as much as possible. We do talk a little bit about San Francisco as well. In fact, this conversation covers a lot of topics from pelicans and uh, eucalyptus trees to Cesar Chavez and Anthony Chabot, tons of other stuff. So please stay tuned. But Chris's new book and his knowledge of the Bay aren't the only reasons why I wanted to talk to him right now. I think we all realize that we're in a moment where some big changes are happening. Uh, Some of those changes might be permanent and they could be very good or very, very bad. And uh, we... All of us, you and I, we have the power to influence which direction things go. People are starting to take a really hard, critical look at society's priorities and the way work is valued and the ways that government functions or doesn't. These are all things that Chris has been writing about and organizing around his whole life. He's a very challenging and radical thinker but it seems like radical change is exactly what we need to be considering right now. Because clearly, business as usual isn't really working. We're literally right in the middle of the greatest global economic collapse maybe in history. And, you know, I don't think sending everyone a thousand bucks or whatever is the band-aid that they decide on is going to fix this mess. Okay, one more thing before the interview. Besides the boat tours and the books, Chris also runs an incredible project about local history called Shaping SF. They do walks, bike rides, live events, and they maintain an incredible archive called Found SF, which I should add has tons of East Bay history as well. And he doesn't do it by himself. 
His partner with all that is my good friend, Lisa Ruth Elliott. Hi, Lisa Ruth, who I've known for many years and has been an inspiration to me as a community-focused, kind of street-level historian. You can find all the details about their project at shapingsf.org. All right, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Chris Carlson. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday Q&A. Your approach to history is not traditional because you're not an academic. You're not doing this in a classroom for the most part. You're not writing books about the quote-unquote big men of history. You're not writing the biographies of, you know, Churchill and Lincoln and and folks like this. You're taking more of a a bottom-up approach. Can you tell me about your perspective on why what you're doing is is valuable and and how you do that? Uh, I stumbled into doing history a little bit backwards. So I was not actually formally gathering historical materials or thinking about myself as a historian. I'm actually a college dropout since 1979. And one of my claims to fame earlier in life was one of being one of the founders and publishers of Processed World magazine for throughout the 1980s. Some people will know it as a sort of way ahead of its time in analyzing the stupidity of modern work with a particular look at the absurdities of the modern office and uh, you know, wage slavery in the corporate world. But you guys were criticizing the tech industry about a decade or two before just about anybody else. Yeah, we started publishing in 1980, 81, and, the, you know, right from the beginning, we were questioning the sort of uh, the assumptions of this sort of liberation through technology being kind of obviously absurd. But also just the, the modern automated office was going to inc- increase productivity and do all these wonderful things for, for everybody. And obviously, most of the work we were doing was a total waste of time, and nobody should even do it in the first place, let alone do it more efficiently. So, <laughs> And that also spoke to the problems that we had with the labor movement. I was coming out of a you know, fairly radical left background with other friends who had been had a group earlier called the Union of Concerned Commies. And uh, we were very critical of the labor movement right from the get-go, and we saw the. We were also critical of the Soviet Union and all forms of what called itself communism at the time as being completely not. So you know, I'm always in favor of people getting organized, but I'm not always in favor of them getting organized under an AFL-CIO trade union, which is often turns out to be your enemy once you want to get anywhere in terms of changing the conditions of your life. And so. That tends to set people on the left a little bit into a tizzy because they want you to have a kind of a rah-rah, go, 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 unions great, business bad kind of attitude. And I'm you know, very critical of capitalism, but I'm not uh, a big fan of the existing trade union structure. And I became very deeply involved in a number of labor struggles over the 80s to doing uh, the journalism we were doing in processed world. And that, uh, what, that essentially was sort of how I kind of backed into thinking historically about, about workers' movements and wanting to understand better, you know, how we got into the predicament we were in. And then I also personally had a background that started in the mid-70s of being very involved in the anti-nuclear movement. From when I was 17, 18 years old, I got involved with the, the whole campaign for the Proposition 15 in 1975 to ban nuclear power in California. That movement was very influential on me, which with its sort of anarchist affinity group structures and things like that. And I was also ended up being very critical of that as well, because I'm just an ordinary person. But the upshot of it was that my experience with Citizens for a Better Environment, knocking on doors throughout the Bay Area in 1978 and helping them get started here in California, they're now known as Communities for a Better Environment, led me to this sort of predicament where I'd be knocking on people's doors and talking to them about acid rain and toxic waste and nuclear, uh, you know, radio, radioactive problems with nuclear power, et cetera, and then realized there was this disconnect between what I was talking to them about at the door and their own lived experience. And so I started asking them, well, what do you do? How, how does what you do influence this? And it was like revelatory to have that conversation with people door to door. And I realized that the problem, this organization, while it had all the best in, best intentions and decent scientists and lawyers doing doing their thing, they were actually by structurally, they were structurally committed to keeping things as they were. Like if things actually changed substantially, they would be out of business. And that's true of all these groups. And that was such a deep logical flaw to the setup that it set me on a path of thinking critically about both the ecological movement and the labor movement. So this book, Hidden San Francisco, is part of my efforts to reconcile this long and turbid history that I've been involved with and thought a lot about and written a lot about and analyzed and studied a lot about the connections between the work we do and the mess we're making and, and how we're really damaging our entire prospect for future human life 
by the way we organized our productive activities and the reproduction of everyday life. Well, speaking of the book, you do cover quite a bit of San Francisco history, but as I mentioned earlier, you also talk a lot about the Bay itself, the San Francisco Bay. And one of the uh, notes that you have in the book is about how the Spanish passed by the Golden Gate for decades before they actually entered the Bay in 1776 and decided to take a look around, among other things, uh, which we will get to later in this conversation. But before we get to the colonization of the Bay Area, why did they pass by the Golden Gate so many times before they actually entered? Well, the most common explanation, and nobody can be sure because it's not documented in any way, but it probably was the fog. Our, our best friend, Carl the Fog, is sitting here protecting the bay for a very long time. And it just didn't occur to them that they could come into this big mouth of the Golden Gate and then find this tiny little narrow passage into a, what was you know, the greatest inland estuary and waterway in North America at the time. Nor would they have had any idea that there was, you know, a hundred upwards of a hundred thousand people living around the bay, speaking dozens of languages, and living a very comfortable life. For all those thousands of years that people lived here prior to the arrival of Europeans, imagine every year three giant pulses of salmon going through the Golden Gate, funneling through that tiny channel, and then all around Angel Island, and that, that channel on the other side of Angel Island, and up through the Carquina Straits, and up into all the massive rivers of California, and back out again three times a year. Right, there's the famous uh, description by one of the Spanish diarists of the era who said that it, the, the fish were so thick you could practically walk across their backs for, to get across the Carquina Strait. Yeah, exactly, and that was probably true throughout most of the bay. I mean, large parts of it, and so... One of the stories I like to tell, and I have it in the book, is about you know uh, where the Transamerica Pyramid is today, is exactly where the beach was back then. And then in 1837, not even 200 years ago, it's very recent in history by any stretch of the imagination, there's a young man sitting on the porch of the very first house built in that area of Yerba Buena Cove, which is a, today the houses would be at approximately Clay and Grant in the middle of Chinatown. But at that time, it's the only house built on that slope, and it's a sandy slope going down to the beach. And the tide has gone out, and there's these huge shallow mudflats in Yerba Buena Cove when the tide goes out. It's actually quite shallow. And all these fish get beached every time it goes out because there's so many huge fish in the bay. And so inevitably, there would be large fish just food, free food, help yourself. And who's helping themselves there? It was a coyote and a wolf and a grizzly bear fighting over the fish at, the, at exactly the site of today's Transamerica Pyramid in this guy's memoir. So that kind of abundance is hard for us to even wrap our head around, not to mention the fact that humans lived side by side in, in cohabitation relationships with Fred the bear and you know other animals all around that they were in you know daily contact with that they didn't just automatically slaughter them all and try to drive them out of their environment they actually found ways to coexist right exactly and I know that similarly in terms of uh, the borders of the bay being much different than they are now I think in the East Bay everything uh, west of San Pablo for example most of West Oakland these were all you know mud flats wetlands tool marshes etc so where we have houses and the port of Oakland and highways now. This was a rich, abundant place where Ohlone people were hunting for birds, hunting for fish, where life was just thriving and constantly shifting as well because um, the rivers coming down could get uh, diverted if there was a flood that moved the banks here or there. And it was just a constantly evolving ecosystem. One of the ways that I've, I've seen it described is that the bay was like a giant kidney, constantly filtering itself and cleaning itself. And this is why it was such a such a rich place for not only salmon, but countless other fish species, shellfish, of course, which we see the evidence of in the Ohlone shell mounds and whales, uh, porpoises, etc. I mean, it was just one of the most thriving places on the entire West Coast. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, there's a really good book recently by James C. Scott called Against the Grain, where he's discussing the Mesopotamia area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, but he's looking at the early urbanization. He makes a rather unique argument that humans resisted urbanization and resisted being concentrated in, in, in organized and sedentary settlements for thousands of years. And that, that whole area with Ur and Babylon and all these kinds of early settlements were characteristically, they built walls around them and to hold people in. 
yeah. not to let to keep other people out. And the whole idea that people were constantly escaping to the hinterland. So this that model that took place there is a perfect example of what would have been going on here. Well, I've read that book, and I know that two of the reasons why people didn't want to be forced into living in urban areas is because a they didn't want to pay taxes, and b they didn't want to get diseases. I think two things that people in uh, you know our modern society can certainly appreciate, especially right now. Yeah, the disease thing is pretty big for all of us. We're all wondering how we're gonna restructure our everyday lives to, to make a new accommodation with each other and, and, and complex life with, with the, the fear of massive viruses getting out of hand, which has always been present. Getting back to uh, your approach to history and, and the Ohlone people as well, uh, if you read a lot of older California textbooks, for example, they will describe California as a quote-unquote free state because California was never you know part of the, the southern slaveholding sphere. But to call California a free state is really misleading for, for a lot of reasons, but I want to focus specifically on the shocking fact that you discussed in the book about how it's estimated that maybe up to a quarter of households in California, Northern California, I should say, held an Indian child in slavery during the 1850s. Can you give a little bit of context for that statistic? Well, this comes from Benjamin Madley's uh, amazing work, American Genocide, the California Indian Tragedy, where he's gone through the records of every single death of a native Californian from 1846 to 1873. And in that deep dive into all that information, he came up with these, this statistic of one out of four households having an Indian slave child. Combine that work with that of a Stacey L. Smith and her book, Freedom's Frontier, where she's done incredibly work on California as a, as a site of slavery and a contested relationships between free indentured and slave labor. And it's a remarkable piece of work that I also relied heavily on for this analysis. And she chose how the ward system, which was a common use throughout history of, you know, in a patriarchal society that a man could take a child who was, you know, either orphaned or, or somehow, uh, dis you know, disconnected from their original family situation and take them in as a ward. And this happened extensively in early California. And the ward system allowed child slavery to be hidden because once you were made a ward, that guy who owned the family and did own it in every sense of the word had all the rights to your labor. And they would take in children deliberately to become slave labor in the house. And so, so, you know, Indian labor was a big part of that. Also black labor. Black children were used quite a lot as, as indentured slaves within families who had managed to get them, up, you know, taken in as wards during that period of history. So those are the ones that are kind of obvious. And, you know, you mentioned the point that California comes in as a free state during the 1850 compromise, and that's officially true. And a part of that compromise also involved the willingness to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act. And since there had been many Southerners who arrived here prior to 1850 during the gold rush with their enslaved humans uh, along with them and brought them here to work in the mines and various other things and often ended up uh, renting them out as wage laborers for other entrepreneurs in Sacramento and up in the gold fields and everywhere else. And then the white owner would take the wages but the point being that there was quite a lot of people here who were not here as free human beings in various capacities. And the laws upheld that, that lack of freedom. Uh, California and San Francisco courts repeatedly returned people to slavery, even when they'd already like, gotten away and married somebody and started a life in some place like Healdsburg or wherever. And then all of a sudden they're dragged into court and their owner says, this is my, my property and I'm going back to Mississippi or Alabama and I want my property. And the court would say, sorry, yeah, you're right. That's your property. You could take it with you. Right. The courts were no place to find justice for people of color in the state, whether you know African-American, Chinese, Native American, because basically to stress the principles of white supremacy that the state was founded on, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but people of color were not allowed to testify in court to defend themselves. Really, the only, the only testimony that counted in any court throughout the state of California was the testimony of white people, right? right. Yeah, for the most part, white men, too. And that's, of course, the only people allowed to vote were white men as well. So that was uh, deeply rooted in the logic of California right from the get-go. Slavery is what built California. Slave labor are extremely, un, uh, you know, exploited 
coerced labor of various types. And of course, the exploitation of California's abundant natural resources. And I, I want to move there because many people probably think of the gold rush as being California's first big boom. But a few decades before that, there was another boom. And I'm talking about the uh, rush to slaughter every otter as quickly as possible. Can you tell me about how fur traders descended on the West Coast from all over the world? Yeah, well, it starts in the late 1700s and kind of gets, it runs out of steam around 1830s and 1840s. So before California takes off with the gold rush and any kind of urbanization has happened, there's already been a complete depletion of otter, sea otters along the coast of California, primarily by British, uh, Spanish, and Russian uh, essentially farmers, if you will. They were harvesting these otters as though they were just a raw material to be harvested. And those uh, otter pelts, of course, were extremely water repellent and extremely warm. So they were making hats and coats and all sorts of stuff from you know, various places and selling them into European capitals, which is where all those furs would end up. It didn't lead to any particular uh, economic development of the West Coast of North America, hardly at all. They would just take them and leave, you know, because maybe drop anchor and fix their boat in a, in a harbor at various moments, including the San Francisco Bay. But for the most part... Maybe build was, a small wooden trading post here or there. Yeah, like Fort Ross, famously, where the Russians came down from the north. And then, you know, there was a the little bit of trading going on in the bay with uh, mostly hide and tallow from the huge burgeoning supplies of cattle here by the beginning of the 1800s. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. But uh, the first, raw, you know, heavy exploitation from the, the, of the living beings of the sea were both the, the sea otters and, of course, the whales. Can't forget the whales because... Whaling begins in the late 1600s around Nantucket Island and, and new, out of New Bedford later in, in uh, New England. And it, the demand for it is what's sort of lost to us in history, is that the demand for whale oil came first from uh, people living in London and Paris who were freaked out by crime in the streets. And they found out that whale oil burned lighter and whiter and longer than anything else. And so there was suddenly this huge demand for whale oil. And that led to an expansion of whaling in the, in the Atlantic. And the, pretty soon they successfully had exploited most of the whale stocks of the Atlantic to the point that they had to go around the, the bottom of South America and into the Southern Pacific and slowly work their way up through the Pacific. So by the time you get to, you know, well into San Francisco's development in the 1870s, uh, th that's when San Francisco is the largest whaling port on the West Coast. And one of the other pieces of the story is not only the... But just real quick, uh, before we move away from the whaling industry, I just want to give a shout out to an earlier episode of East Bay Yesterday where I do talk about Captain William Shorey, who was one of the... I'm sorry, he was the only African-American whaling captain in West Coast history. And uh, for those of you listening who are uh, interested in that story, you can find it on my website, but also you can still see his house. He lived in West Oakland, not too far from the West Oakland and BART station, and um, something that I think is on a lot of our minds right now is uh, looking back to the Spanish flu of 1918 and that epidemic, and that was the uh, that was the global situation that ended up ending Captain Shorey's life. He, he, he perished in that uh, Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 and is buried in Mountain View Cemetery at the end of Piedmont Avenue in Oakland. Uh, and you can still visit his grave and his house to this day. Sorry, you were you were saying, Chris? Uh, I spent a lot, of, a lot of my youth hanging around in Mountain View Cemetery. <laughs> just there two days ago. Great place. Um, well, I've just another side, since we're doing little asides, is to mention that Captain Adams was a, was a whaling captain in San Francisco, and you can still see his house, too, on Pennsylvania 18th. One uh, once was just uphill from the bay when the bay was much larger than it is today. So that kind of dovetails a little bit with some of our stories. And you, if you're interested in some of these things that we're talking about, you might find them on our website, foundsf.org, if you haven't checked it out already. It's a sprawling site full of East Bay history as well as, but mostly San Francisco. So there's, there's quite a bit there to explore. I've used it quite a few times in my research. You know, speaking of San Francisco, I guess we can talk about your city a little bit. People think of it now as this uh, beautiful mecca for tourism because of its sweeping vistas and, and gorgeous bridges, etc. But uh, you write in the book about how 19th century visitors complained that San Francisco was particularly ugly. And I'm quoting from the book now, it's muddy roads made for a miserable stay. The bay was a putrid dump full of sewage whipped by cold ocean winds. 
those of us who have spent time on, on both sides of the bay know that the East Bay is usually a little bit warmer, a little bit flatter. Seems like it would be an easier place to settle. So when these uh, colonizers were coming and you know these sailors are descending upon the bay, why would they build the port in San Francisco instead of Oakland or somewhere in the East Bay when it's colder, muddier? Why would they pick this this nasty side of the bay over here that you've chose to live on? Yeah, I mean, why would they not go into Richardson Bay in Marin where it was sheltered and warmer as many people did try to do later up in Benicia, you know, in the other side of the Carquinez Straits, another logical sheltered and better protected place to, to build a city. And there were efforts to build cities in other areas uh, early on, but the settlement, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, uh, inertia that comes from investments and people start building these wooden houses along the Yerba Buena Cove already starting in the 1830s. And by then, you know, of course, the Spanish had already been here for a while. They'd had their Presidio out where the Presidio is today, and they'd had Mission Dolores, and they'd developed agriculture around Mission Dolores. And so there was a certain amount of resources available and a certain amount of inertia from that. And then, you know, we have to mention the fact that the Mission Dolores had become the point of attraction for a great number of native Californians who were finding them, their traditional food sources drying up on them because of the arrival of the cattle and the other, uh, essentially, the agricultural animals that the Spanish brought with them, which radically altered the landscapes, not just of the San Francisco Peninsula, but the whole Bay Area. But the other thing that they couldn't know that they were bar bargaining for at that moment was disease. So once again, we're on the disease theme, but there was drastic epidemics of measles and other kinds of, of easily communicable diseases in those early decades of, of California life, you know, between the Spanish taking over, uh, coming here in 1776, and then the Mexican Revolution, which kind of concludes in, eight, in 1821. But uh, in 1805, there was a demographic collapse of the population in, in Mission Dolores when measles wiped out all the children five years old and younger, all of them. And so it's really hard to fathom, you know, I mean, we've got our problems today, and we're looking at mass death again. But this has been the story of the history of California and the history of what happened to Native peoples in North America. It was mass disease and mass death in introduced by you know strange toxic bugs that came with the Europeans back in the day. Right. And then just to close the loop on this issue of why the San Francisco side of the Bay was developed so much earlier than the East Bay, my understanding also is the fact that San Francisco essentially offered access to a deep water port Whereas even now when I'm doing my boat tours over in the East Bay, when we're going over by the Berkeley Pier and along, you know, near the Oakland port, except for the channels that have been dredged to allow the, the ships to go through, a lot, oftentimes you're in water that's only about four feet, five feet, six feet, seven feet deep, and that the San Francisco side, because of the underwater currents, uh, it's just a lot deeper. So when you're trying to have a big commercial harbor and you don't have the modern dredging technology that we have now, it's just easier to uh, settle on that side where you're not going to constantly be getting uh, beached on the bottom of the bay, correct? Absolutely. And in fact, it goes a little further than that, because if you think about the original bay during, you know, prior to urbanization, it was at least a third larger than it is today. So as you look at that open expanse of water, the vast majority of it's quite shallow. And what led to the Save the Bay movement in the 1960s was the recognition by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in a map they published in 1959 that a very large percentage of bay waters was suitable for fill because it was so shallow, and they could turn it into valuable real estate. And so they published a map that year, 1959, that showed the bay in 2020. And it was essentially two wide rivers, and everything else was filled in. And there was an ongoing effort for quite a long time to do that. But the, to the point about Yerba Buena Cove, why there, of all places? Well, one thing is it was sheltered by, by Knob and Russian hills from the winds, the persistent winds. I mean, it was still windy, but not like it was on the other side of those hills. Uh, it had... A, a large, you know, shallow cove, Yerba Buena Cove, and once you got past the cove, then you had a very deep channel. So ships that couldn't come all the way in, they started to build wooden piers out across the cove to reach the deep water. And that happened as soon as there was this takeoff moment of urbanization. But prior to that, all the ships arrived and just sunk into the may into the bay mud. And so, the earliest San Francisco landscape of, of a city was made up of ships that had been beached in the mud and then piers had been built in, in and amongst them, connecting them up. And some of them were turned into hotels and, and warehouses and things like that. And then there was maybe five ma massive fires in San Francisco during the first two years that burned all of this to the ground. You've mentioned Save the Bay, the uh, organization, a few times and alluded to that movement to 
change the laws in order to prevent all the dumping in the bay. You know, my boat tour takes off from the Emeryville Marina, which was uh, supposed to be a lot bigger. They were, the, the city of Emeryville was trying to expand. It was very busy dumping uh, tons and tons of uh, waste into the bay in order to expand the land, the, the size of the land. But they were halted by the new laws that saved the bay, uh, helped spearhead in Sacramento that created the BCDC, the what does BCDC stand for again? I always forget this. It's like Bay... Bay Conservation and Development Commission. Right. And and they're the ones that regulate what can get dumped in the Bay, which is very little these days. But uh, yeah, exactly. As you were saying earlier, you know, before people were just, you know, building things like Foster City and uh, over on uh, the east side, you know, Albany Bulb and things like that. And, and Save the Bay was a big part of why that was stopped. And I have to acknowledge the fact that it was three women from Berkeley mm-hmm. who helped kind of get that movement catalyzed and develop a lot of popular support for this idea that the bay shouldn't just be a giant garbage dump that we can uh, fill in because uh, we need it (laughs) and it's beautiful and it should be for everyone. Uh, funny aside from that is that when I was uh, uh, growing up, I mentioned I grew up in Oakland and we would you know, do the gar- yard scraps. You know, we'd go out and do our gardening and have these huge bags of gardening scraps. And typically we'd fill up the back of the car and drive down to the Berkeley Marina and there was a huge dump there. And you would take it out. And it's today it's a park, right? When you go to pass- down the end of university and you turn right and there's a kind of a big parkland out there with some restaurants and whatnot. But in those days, it was the garbage. It was the dump for household debris of various types. And so, you know, they had the large earth movers and all that scraping back and forth and trying to fill it all in. So that land that you see out there is one of the last remaining sites, or one of the last sites that was allowed to have uh, dumping into the bay for quite a long time. Well, well, staying on this theme of dumping into the bay, I'm sure there was quite a few people besides yourself dumping yard scraps into the bay. And of course, there was construction waste getting dumped in the bay to build things like or get rid of uh, waste in order to build things like the Albany bulb. But probably there's nothing in terms of dumping in the bay. Nothing has probably ever been on the scale of what happened after the invention of hydraulic mining during the gold rush. People who live in the East Bay are probably familiar with the uh, name Chabot. We've, of course, got Lake Chabot, Chabot Observatory, and and the elementary school. But this is all named after Anthony Chabot. So can you tell me a little bit about Anthony Chabot and this uh, brilliant insight that he came up with that if you blast water at the uh, mountains, that's a pretty efficient way to get at the gold. And then what was the downstream impact of that of that technological innovation? Well, that's interesting. I didn't realize Chabot was the in- innovator of hydraulic mining. I'll have to look more into that. But um, the hydraulic mining process was part of this tech boom, the first tech boom in, in, in Bay Area and San Francisco's history, which was in the 18, you know, 1848 to early 1850s when metallurgy and metalworking took off and there was a, a thousand men working in different foundries all along where first admission is today were more or less where the the giant suppository is that some people refer to as the salesforce tower but uh in any case that area was uh, the site of the boom and the boom then led to all this innovative techniques of, of creating you know giant hoses using basically the hydrostatic pressure of gravity fed th- flumes bringing water down from the mountain and they would use the water, they'd put it through these canvas hoses, and then these new-fangled nozzles, and they created this high-powered jet of water. That then, Because they realized right away after the first six months of placer mining, you know, the famous story we all learn in elementary school is these kind of grizzled old guys in these chaps and with the pan and the water and getting gold. That worked for a while, but... After just you know a year at most, most places where that was done, and then in order to get gold, you needed capital, lots of it, and so huge amounts of money comes in, and the basically the geologists helped them understand that there was ancient stream beds in the granite sides of the mountains, and the best way to get that they found out was this invention. I guess Chabot come up comes up with was like using extremely powerful jets of water to wash away the rock in order to get it to come down where you can pull the gold out of it. And where did all that rock go after it was blasted out of the Sierras? All that rock and debris ended up, uh, a lot of it, in, in the floor of the bay. And it took over 100 years. It was still coming down even very recently, uh, pulsing down. And of course, it's completely laden with methyl mercury because mercury, which was mined heavily in south of San Jose at the Almaden Quicksilver Mines or Cinnabar Mines, as it was referred to originally, was one of the greatest sources of, of mercury ever discovered, and that was then used to amalgamate the gold in the rock in the in the industrial processing of all this debris up in the up in the mountains, 
and get the gold out, but then everything else just gets washed away. And so you have this incredible industrial hellscape uh, on the Yuba River and the American River and the Feather River and all these places, and this giant pulses of debris coming down. And so in 1884, that those pulses of debris were so severe that farmers were seeing their farms inundated by 60, 70, 80 feet of rock and debris. So there was lawsuits, of course, and, and you know California courts were owned lock, stock, and barrel by the wealthy interests of the state, which were mostly bought up and involved in the mining industry at the time. So they never did anything to stop any of this stuff. But a, but a federal court intervened in, in 1884, and a famous decision was finally passed, the Sawyer decision, that uh, outlawed hydraulic mining on the Yuba River in that one case. And that didn't, then didn't automatically apply to everything else. So they had to have case by case up and down the rivers of California to stop hydraulic mining. And eventually all the hydraulic mining moved to other countries where it still goes on to this day. But the devastation of that is quite remarkable. By one account, I, Andrew Eisenberg has it as three and a half Panama canals worth of debris washing out of the mountains of California and into the river systems, which of course altered their navigability, their clarity, their ability to uh, retain their status as habitat for salmon runs, et cetera. So all of these things were seriously damaged back that time. By and I've heard that this really set the stage for a lot of the invasive species that you see coming into the bay around that time because the existing ecosystem, which might have had a better chance of defending itself, was just completely wiped out because it was just submerged by multiple feet of yeah. mining waste. And I know one of the issues that a lot of restoration efforts are dealing with now is throughout the bay there are all these wonderful efforts to try to replant wetlands try to convert former salt operations and things like that back into uh, planting native plants there etc but one of the things they're worried about is when they're planting these new wetlands stirring up some of the mercury that's maybe been buried down there for decades or over a hundred years now so you've got to be really careful about that as well It wasn't only uh, mining waste that was polluting the bay. You have this really uh, telling quote in the book about how nearly every creek gained the nickname Shit Creek uh, for fairly obvious reasons. So in terms of, you know, thinking about this from a public health perspective, what did that do during this era when so many people were dependent on um, harvesting shellfish, shrimp? fish from the bay when there's just plumes and plumes of uh, feces and other uh, yeah. human waste just flushing into the bay through these through these river systems and creeks. Well, I've been wondering about that for a while, too, because it's really not until, you know, the Save the Bay movement starts in 63, and then you have the Clean Water Act passing in 71. And up until then, you just had raw sewage pouring into the bay regularly. And even after the passage of this, the 1971 Clean Water Act, it took a long time to implement anything close to a modern sewage system. So you have, you know, everybody's been at the end of the East of the Bay Bridge where you see the East Bay mud uh, sewage treatment plants over there. And that's the, the secondary treatment that's become standardized throughout the Bay Area and throughout most of uh, the so-called developed world. And um, that's great. It's way better than it used to be. It used to be a chain link fence across the mouth of the outflow and catch the dead bodies and the large pieces of logs and things. And that was sewage treatment up until very recently. So we've come a long way, baby, on that front. But, you know, the question is, it's a, one that I don't think anybody's actually done a proper research. So anybody out there who's looking for a great historical investigation to engage in is to think about what was the public health implications of fishing in the bay during the years in which there was zero sewage treatment and zero control over what was flowing into it, either industrially or in terms of household waste. So who knows? I mean, I, I know that there was a giant shrimping industry in the Bay with, you know, dozens of men working on all Chinese on Chinese shrimping uh, operations. So there's 11 different companies along the shores of India Basin in San Francisco. They had them up in Point, so Point San Pedro, I guess it is, off near Richmond. And then, of course, China Camp in, in Marin and other places. My understanding is that there was a Chinese shrimping village out um, in kind of, you know, at the border of what then was West Oakland um, as well. So, you know, certainly uh, shrimping, Chinese shrimping villages in the in the East Bay, and then as well as up in uh, Point Malate in Richmond now as well. well. Point Malate, yeah. yeah. So that, that, they actually were, you know, the statistics are out there that you can see they were still harvesting as many as 3 million pounds a year of shrimp out of the bay in the, like, like as late as 1929, 1930. Wow, that would have been super toxic. 
<laughs> right, because it, once you get that uh, uh, late in history or recent, I should say, you're not only dealing with uh, human waste, but you know, there's smelting plants, there's paint factories, you know, there's all kinds of industrial waste flowing yeah, into the bay. Heavy metals are in use, of course. It's post-World War II where you get the incredible amount of plastic coming into the environment. So that's a separate issue. Right. But Yeah, I want to stay on this theme of ways that the Bay Area's landscape was radically transformed since the dawn of, of European colonization in the Bay Area. When, when I say transformation landscape, you know, people are probably thinking infrastructure like buildings, roads. But there's two factors that were just massively influential in changing the way the Bay Area looked that most people probably don't think about day to day. And you've alluded to both of these already. And I'm talking about the introduction of agriculture and cattle ranching. The Ohlone people didn't need to practice what Europeans consider traditional agriculture because of the abundance of natural resources around here. In Oakland, you can gather acorns during harvest season, you know, leach the tannin outs, grind those up and make flour. You don't need to plant oak trees every year because they're just providing as many acorns as you need. You mentioned these giant salmon runs. There's tons of shellfish. You can hunt for elk. You can hunt for deer. One way that the Native American people, the Ohlone, did uh, transform the landscape was through burning. They, uh, this was a very wise policy, as I think a lot of people are coming to realize now. When you burn the undergrowth, it actually produces a much healthier forest that's generating the kinds of plants that you want and not just a bunch of weeds and things like that. But when the Europeans come, they decide they would prefer to do things their way. Um, they really looked down on the Ohlone people and denigrated them, called them diggers and things like that, because they uh, didn't appreciate this, this relationship that the Native people had had uh, with the land for thousands of years that uh, resulted in a very stable and um, sustainable way of life. But uh, what kinds of agriculture did the Europeans first introduce to the Bay Area, and how did that transform the landscape, I guess is the question I'm getting to. Well, overwhelmingly, the, the answer is the cow. I mean, the, all, almost all of the original agriculture in this area was uh, essentially cattle grazing, putting out livestock. And it was not just cows, it was also sheep and pigs and, and uh, you know, horses. But all of them had a devastating effect on the native plant environments, the, the interlocking grasses, et cetera. And one of the bigger features of this famously was the arrival of European grasses. And it turns out that the European grasses that came in the hooves and the, and the, and the crap of the, of the animals, were uh, the seeds of them were more robust and able to supplant native grasses wherever landscapes got disrupted. And of course, nothing disrupts a landscape like a herd of cows munching, 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 and their hooves to turning up the soil and everything else. So uh, the disruption of, of traditional webs of life in the flora of the area was extreme and extensive, and it expanded rapidly. So as that happened, a lot of the sort of traditional things that people that had lived here for so long had depended on and knew as a sort of cycle of life and ways to get what they needed began to get disrupted. And it, it, let, it forced so many of them to turn to the missions to feed, to get food, because they became very hungry. So starvation drove many Indians into the mission system because of their traditional way of life was so disrupted. And of course, they couldn't uh, count on elk herds when the elk herds were driven away by cattle herds and, and horses and Spanish killing all the elk and just leaving them rotting, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, radical change, it all comes down to the cow. And then over time, <clears throat> you have the expansion of, of uh, fields of hay and, and, and other kinds of grasses to feed the ca cattle, right? They, they can live off the landscape in the first years or few years, but eventually you start growing crops just to feed them. And that becomes areas that take up large parts of the, the shorelines of the Bay Area. You know, the southern, the south, southern East Bay becomes a huge hay growing region really early. Later, the delta itself is completely altered, and that's thanks largely to Chinese labor. Because the Chinese laborers, people who came from China, came mostly from the Pearl River Delta. And they knew very well how to deal with you know, long-term wetlands management and turning every little patch of land into something that you could get food out of. And so they brought their skills and techniques and, and sort of long accumulated knowledge to California and helped teach Europeans how to dike uh, the delta up in a way to create all those agricultural islands out in the delta, which in turn became booming sites of wheat production in the early days of California. And so wheat extended itself very fast throughout the area, uh, essentially after the Americans got here, there was a giant wheat boom in the 1860s, 1870s, and that wheat boom went all throughout the world because it, the wheat that came uh, out of the 
unbelievably rich soils. I mean, here's the thing that we often forget to say is that the, the reason there was such an abundance produced in California up to this day has been the thousands and thousands of years of accumulated hummus of really deep, rich soils in California, which in many parts of the state are reaching their end because of the hyper-exploitation by industrialized agriculture and the over-exploitation of aquifers and, and freshwater resources. Right, that land is literally sinking and becoming more uh, saline now. Yeah, we basically we've used it up in a really harsh and brutal way that is, you know, we lack the foresight to understand that you can't do that. You have right. to actually treat your land as a renewable resource. And, yeah, and we've used sure. up something in about, you know, a couple decades that the uh, Native people had kept going pretty sustainably for millennia. Yeah, and the nature itself had replenished over and over again with massive floods in the center of the state. You know, every, every year annual floods would come down from the mountains and flood the whole Central Valley and deposit huge amounts of silt and soil. And, and that was, you know, literally thousands of years worth of depth of rich soils, which we've then, with industrial agriculture, fully exploited. So the wheat boom then, of course, has a major fa effect on world economy with cheap California grain showing up by clipper ships all over the world and yeah. lowering prices in various places. Also, when people think of agriculture, they're thinking of livestock, they're thinking of food, etc. But another form of agriculture is uh, tree farms. And one tree that you mentioned in the book, of course, is the eucalyptus, the non-native eucalyptus, which I believe came from Australia. And uh, there's this ast astonishing section of the book where you talk about how somebody planted 30,000 seedlings of eucalyptus trees along Telegraph Avenue back when this was a, a rural stretch of uh, North Oakland, South Berkeley. So why did people think it was a good idea to bring eucalyptus here by the, by the hundreds of thousands? And what was the long-lasting legacy of that uh, ill-fated business scheme? The eucalyptus story is very interesting. There's also another really good book to read about that called Trees in Paradise by Jared Farmer. It has a very good account of all this. But the eucalyptus arrives originally in California from Australia in the 1870s that farmers bring it over uh, with a sort of horticultural approach thinking, well, these are really interesting plants and they could serve some purposes for us. They're ornamental. They're also going to, if they grow, since they grow quite rapidly, the blue gum eucalyptus, we could use them for windbreaks out in big, vast plains of California where they needed windbreaks. So that was the original use, and it wasn't any big splash or, you know, large level of exploitation or anything unusual there. But they became familiar. And then all of a sudden, around eight, 1904, starts appearing these ads in local papers and say, there's a hardwood, there's also some uh, corresponding articles in the newspapers, a hardwood crisis is hitting California. We're going to run out of hardwood. We've harvested so many trees and, you know, the lumber mills are just going over, to, over, over time all the time. And so we're running out of hardwood and we need to solve this crisis. And you, citizen, reading this ad, can get rich quick by getting it on the ground floor. And here's how you do it. You buy this tray of seedlings, this tray of seedlings that we have here of the blue gum eucalyptus tree, and you plant them in an acre of land that you buy from us for you know rock bottom price of two dollars and fifty cents or five bucks out near the Mojave Desert or out in the middle of nowhere, and you plant these trees and off they'll go and you will be able to retire on the proceeds and your children and your children's children will be wealthy beyond their wildest imagination for the rest of time, because you're going to be the lumber baron of the future, and so first you know many many people fell for this idea. Of I get, believe get, Jack get, London, the famous Oakland author, was one of the people who got uh, taken in by this idea. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. But anyway, the idea that, you know, you could get rich quick is about as old as America. And it's an uh, ongoing thing of the various types of hucksters who exploit people's, you know, desperate poverty and, and obvious desire to stabilize their lives by uh, these quick get rich quick schemes. So this is one of the a version of that. So from 1904 till about 1914, there was a boom and eucalyptus farming. And that story of the 30,000 seedlings in, uh, along Telegraph Avenue was part, one of these plantations that was set up to grow eucalyptus trees to solve the hardwood crisis. Uh, and there were many other ones all around the Bay Area and all around California during that time. So that's when we got sort of the plague of vast numbers of eucalyptus trees really hit, this, hit the state in a big way. And of course, we, you, you wonder, well, how did they get to be everywhere? Well, they just spread themselves quite rapidly. And so what happened is in 1914, the Department of Forestry came out with a report. And it said the blue gum eucalyptus tree 
first of all, it's the wrong species. There's 267 varieties of, of eucalyptus trees in, in Australia. This is oops, a, oops. <laughs> this is not one that's suitable for lumber. It's a, the wood is curved and brittle, and the grains aren't right, and it just won't work for lumber. You can't build anything with with eucalyptus. It's also not actually useful for anything else. It doesn't have any particular agricultural use, et cetera. You can use, you know, obviously you use them for um, lozenges and oils, essential oils, things like that, but that's not enough to sustain this boom. So everybody throws up their hands and walks away from their eucalyptus trees. And many of them just go to seed and they start spreading. And you know, so that's when you had the Oakland East Bay Hills get full of eucalyptus trees was during that period of time from about 1910 on. And then, of course, in I think it's 21 or 22, when the giant, 1922, the giant fire hits the East Bay Hills and burns all the way down into downtown Berkeley. And then again in 1991, we saw it happen again. In both cases, it's because the eucalyptus tree, the blue gum eucalyptus tree, is a, is a pyrocyte. It's actually a plant that, that depends on fire to propagate itself over distances. And so what happened, of course, in 91, I know better. I don't know the earlier story as well, but I assume it was similar as there had been a freeze and many trees had frozen and died and they were sort of sitting there brittle, but they're still full of oils and live seeds. And then they catch fire in the following winter or dry, dry you know, late summer period for us. And uh, once they catch fire, they kind of explode, literally. Like they're like gas bombs in a way. And they, when they explode, they send their seeds up onto the, the currents and they fly long distances and then land in the ground and plant themselves. And this is the normal thing in Australia. It's a very pyrocytic uh, environment down there where mass fires, as we know, have been quite severe lately and are getting more severe. But these are an uh, example of a plant life that has grew up in that environment. And now it's, it's brought that, that fire regime to California in a big way. It's unfortunate that eucalyptus, or at least blue gum eucalyptus, are so uh, relatively useless and uh, potentially devastating because I, I hike a lot in the East Bay Hills and I appreciate them for their shade and uh, they smell pretty good too. That being said, it is uh, just a, a ticking time bomb having so many eucalyptus trees up there as, as we've seen more than once. The, the brilliant uh, San Francisco environmental writer Harold Gilliam, who's passed away a couple of years ago now, uh, but wrote for the Chronicle for decades, has a number of books about the natural history of the Bay Area, and he has a pretty nice account of the eucalyptus tree as a sort of substitute for redwoods because of its ability to capture fog drip and bring that down to the ground. The trouble is that eucalyptus trees uh, turn the soil at their base uh, extremely alkaline, and they're very unsuitable for other native plants, so they tend to supplant the native flora that would be here otherwise. But yeah, there's you know always a mixed bag. Jared Farmer's book that I mentioned earlier does talk about the eucalyptus tree as well, very well loved by Californians. And of course, when you get into this native plant argument, you run into all sorts of weird uh, associative mental states that come from some bad ways of thinking. And so for a lot of us, we don't want to be too... Well, I don't want to wade too deeply into that controversy because I know people get extremely heated on both sides of that battle, and uh, I'm not trying to get any hate mail uh, anytime soon. <laughs> so I'm just going to... We'll just leave it at that on the eucalyptus situation. But uh, getting back to the Bay, another industry that had a spectacular rise and fall and is now rising again is the ferry industry. Apparently, the bay was the most ferry passengers anywhere in the world for a while, um, just because of the amount of, of commerce and, and travel that was happening on the bay before the, the Golden Gate and the Bay Bridge was built. So can you tell me a little bit about what was going on on the bay back in the day in terms of, of uh, ferry transportation? Well, it's worth noting that the, not only was there a tremendous amount of internal traffic in the bay and into the inland empire, as they called it, up the river system of California. That's how people got around was by boat, really well in, until the into the 20th century. It was the rise of the, the bridges followed by the, the expansion of the freeways built in the 1950s by the, you know, the interstate highway system by the Eisenhower regime. As a, ostensibly as a defense project at the time that really permanently altered that relationship to the water that we have now. Uh, and of course, as you mentioned, it's coming back. So that's, that's a good sign. We, we know we've reached by gone way beyond the limits of the private automobile as a solution to private to any kind of transportation. But the uh, interesting to think back, the ferry building had you know 20 million passengers a year passing through it in 1904. I mean, it was a long time ago. And so you had ferries crisscrossing the bay. Every, I don't know where all the stations were, all the all the terminals, but they were all over the place. And Well, I've got a couple of great postcards of the Oakland Mole, because I know that that was one of the, one of the big uh, 
terminal points for between Oakland and San Francisco was basically out at the end of 7th Street there. And then, uh, of yeah. course, there was also terminals that came up the Oakland estuary and, and dropped people off near where uh, Jacqueline Square is now. Yeah, well, the Oakland Mole went pretty much almost halfway out to Yerba Buena Island. It was a long way out under, underneath today's Bay Bridge or then the, pre the previous Bay Bridge that was there. And uh, for a long time, that was a huge train terminal, and you'd come out on the you know the key system trains, and also you know the 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 Northern Pacific trains that would come down from Chico and the Central Valley would all come and terminate there. Uh, at some point, you had you know transcontinental railroads also terminating not far from there, and uh, people would get off the trains and onto a ferry and get off the ferry at the ferry building 20 minutes later and make their way into town, usually on a streetcars because everybody was getting around on, on all those all the time. And then when the Bay Bridge opened, they actually ran this, those key system trains, of course, across the bridge. And it was in 1958 when they did, did away with that. And so I can go on a whole rant about the Bay Bridge. But one of the early, earlier people to rant about the Bay Bridge was... I feel like you can go on a, a whole rant about a lot of things, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, <laughs> just flip the switch and off I go. Uh, but Lewis Mumford, who's a great urban thinker, uh, wrote in 1963 in the, New York, in the New Yorker magazine about how the Bay Bridge had made life much worse on both sides of the bridge by ra radically increasing the amount of traffic crossing the bay every day. And his crucial point was how much it destroyed the ferry and how the ferry had been this uniquely wonderful aspect of living in the San Francisco Bay Area, of being able to cross the water on a daily basis and, and to really breathe the air and see the sun and glinting on the ocean, on the waters, et cetera. Yeah, I believe that was pretty rapid, too, in terms of the downfall of the ferry system. Uh, within two or three years of the opening of the Bay Bridge, I think just about every ferry line went out of business. Yeah, it was super fast. And, you know, people all embracing the, the private automobile. And, of course, tra trains were being switched over to buses, et cetera. Etc. So, a great deal of disruption happened during the middle of the 20th century, thanks to the car, oil, and rubber industries. <laughs> right, and of course, I know you know you've been a longtime bicycle advocate mm -hmm. and uh, advocating for other forms of uh, non-automobile transportation. One of the things you're most well known for, of course, is being one of the co-founders of Critical Mass, the uh, monthly bike ride, which has morphed and, and grown into uh, many different kinds of rides in countries all over the world. In the East Bay now, the East Bay Bike Party is, uh, is going strong. But one thing that I didn't know that I was really surprised to learn about in the book is that about two decades before Critical Mass in the early 70s, there was something in uh, Berkeley on Telegraph Avenue that was kind of in a similar vein of a, a big uh, mobile bike party called Smog Free Locomotion Day that happened for a couple of years. I'd never heard of Smog Free Locomotion Day. Not the catchiest name, but uh, <laughs> did you know about that when you started Critical Mass? Or, or what were you able to dig up about Smog Free Lotion, Locomotion Day? Because I'm just curious about that as a, as a bicyclist myself. Yeah, well, somebody sent me a, a few years ago, long after Critical Mass had been going for a long time, a photograph from the Berkeley Daily Gazette, a cover cover story in 1971, I think August of 71, I forget the exact date, that shows this essentially a critical mass, like a giant ride of bicyclists taking over Telegraph Avenue. So I saw that, I was like, wow, incredible. I was so excited to see it. And then I'm like, wait a minute, did I ever see that? Because I lived right one block from Telegraph Avenue during that time. I'm sure I must have been aware of it, but I don't have any conscious memory at all. And I also visited Denmark a bunch when I was young because my mom's from Denmark. And uh, they had a lot of cycling going on in Denmark, too. So how much did all those things influence my mind when I was, you know, thinking of agitational ideas about biking and politics, you know, along with many other people in the early 90s? Who knows? But, uh, yeah, we found out about many earlier examples, uh, smog-free locomotion day being a prominent one because it was sort of that first wave, you know, Earth Day time and first wave of sort of left ecological thinking because up until that period, ecology and environmentalism and conservation was conservative. It was actually a property full lock, stock, and barrel of, of wealthy right-wingers, or at least wealthy people who were more concerned with conserving their wealth and conserving their, their open spaces and their views and their comfort, and less concerned with what the, the implications were of environmental and social justice that we've sort of put on the foreground now. So that turn to the left happened in that moment, and it happened, you know, a lot of it happened in the East Bay, but also in San Francisco and around the Bay Area because it was this, you know, the anti-Vietnam War movement was at the heart of it. It was fighting against Dow Chemical and Agent Orange and the dumping of vast amounts of toxic chemicals on the, uh, Southeast Asia. Straight up bombing them also was pretty horrifying to everybody, and, and sort of the implications, environmental implications of war during that time became quite clear, and the corporate role 
and sustaining and expanding it was also quite clear. Another piece of the story that I talk about, which has uh, an East Bay connection as well, is this much broader across the state was the farm workers movement, which we've all kind of have pigeonholed back in our minds is, oh yeah, Cesar Chavez, end of story. Or maybe Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, end of story. No. Great boycott. Yeah, and the great boycott. And that's, you know, these are iconic things that happen. And there's also the super complicated stories that actually are underlying that stuff that is worth digging into. Frank Bartke's book on that is enormous and important. But uh, what I like to bring up is the fact that is often been forgotten. You know, we all love to eat. We all are very proud of how good our food is, and we love to go out to our supermarkets and see that we now have these giant stacks of pornographically perfect fruit and vegetables to choose from <laughs> that are all officially organic and safe and clean and blah, blah, blah. And that's all to the good. But you know that's a product of capitalist co-optation that took place over a period of decades because prior to the you know, 1960s and 70s, you really didn't have organic produce, hardly at all, unless you happened to have a friend who had a farm that wasn't super industrialized or super focused on the market. And so, right, or if you were growing your own food without pesticides, you didn't call it organic; you just called it food. Right. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly right. So, uh, you know, back in that time, uh, in 1968, 69, after the Great Boycott was in full swing, and you know, all over America, people are going into supermarket parking lots talking to each other about the farm workers, people who are organizing on behalf of the farm workers. They say, please don't buy the grapes. Support the farm workers in California. Well, what do you mean? Well, they're trying to start a union, and they've been stopped. But they also are you know, need better you know conditions on the on the fields, but the most important thing, the number one issue that they're fighting for is to stop being sprayed with DDT while they work. Imagine. And so that got across to people and they'd already been somewhat uh, aware because of the success of Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring, about the problems of chemical agriculture. So now you start having this inchoate, unfocused sort of demand for healthier, cleaner, better tasting food. So all of this comes together in a moment in the late 60s, and, and Chavez and the, and the United Farm Workers Union make an alliance with the original Environmental Defense Fund, and they file a lawsuit against the use of DDT in the fields of California, and they win. Right. And this is a you know epic moment because it actually changes agricultural practices in California as well as you know many other parts of the world, and leads directly to the rise of organic produce coming out of this time in history. And another wonderful benefit of that DDT ban, um, something that I appreciate all the time, is the fact that it helped bring the pelicans back. The pelicans, among many, many bird species, you name it, they're uh, getting DDT in their system, destroys their ability to reproduce because the eggshells are getting thinner, and uh, bird species are on the brink of going extinct. And then as soon as DDT is outlawed, these bird populations start coming back. And uh, one of the things that I love when I'm, you know, walking along the bay or riding my bike along the bay or out on these boat tours is watching the pelicans do their incredible dive bombs into the bay. It's just uh, thrilling to see them in action. And so uh, it's, it's, it's a great example in the book of how these various social movements can support each other and how there's you know so many sprawling benefits beyond just these immediate impacts that uh, people are making demands for. This book, Hidden San Francisco, A Guide to Lost Landscapes, Unsung Heroes, and Radical Histories is amazing. It's inspiring me as a historian. You've been doing activism for a long time. You've been doing history for a long time. This is kind of the culmination of, of a lot of what you've been studying and sharing for, for so long. Do you feel like you have a goal for what you want people to kind of take away from this book or an impact that you want it to make? Well, of course, you always hope that uh, everything you do has an impact. So yeah, there, there's a fantasy that people will start thinking historically and, and, <laughs> and, and critically about how... I have that fantasy too. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why we do the work we do, right? And, and you know, we live in a society that treats history as you know something negative or, or to be overlooked or, or even as an epithet to tell you that you're irrelevant. All right, you're history, pal. Wait, wait, yeah, that's good, isn't it? Or just like the worst kind of bottom shelf entertainment. I'm thinking of like some of these like uh, documentaries on the History Channel sure. that are more sensational than uh, useful or accurate. Well, I mean, we live in a in a culture that glories itself in in false and really distorted histories, in which we're just constantly patting ourselves on the back. We're the greatest of all people. We're the greatest society that ever was. We've done the greatest things. We're the greatest generation. We do the you know we won all the important wars. We've never done anything wrong. We have the greatest military. It's all false. It's just 100% false, right down the line. Like everything you, that I just said is wrong. And like, how is it wrong? Why is it wrong? What is what service is being carried out by these crazy stories that people? Well, it's obvious the ideological uh, bolstering of a corrupt and 
doddering regime that's super fragile. Now we see just how fragile it all is Indeed. as our daily lives are unraveling completely. So we're headed in another in another direction. We don't know what it is. And, you know, figuring out where we've been has a lot to do with where we're going to end up. And if you don't have a clear idea of the kinds of contestations that have happened before, a clear idea of where decisions got made out of the conflict of choices by different social movements and social forces at any given moment, it's very hard to have a sense of your own agency going forward. Whereas the truth is we have a great deal of agency, even in a situation that we're in today, uh, what, what is going to be the restructuring of society coming out of this ca catastrophe that we're, we've just entered into? That's uh, going to take a lot of fighting. Not going to be easy, not going to be obvious. But I, I mean, I've already been arguing that, you know, the most minimal demands, even if you're not going to overthrow capitalism, you just have to put in basic annual income, basic monthly income for everybody, and single-payer health care. Those are just like the reforms that capitalism needs to save itself. Yeah. Chris, normally I would uh, give you a handshake or a big hug right now. I'm not going to do that, so I'll give you like an air high five and uh, say thank you for being on East Bay yesterday. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, it's, a, it's an honor to be on your show. Hi, everybody. Just one more thing. I've had to put a few episodes I was working on on hold, unfortunately. Uh, I don't want to interview anyone in person right now, obviously. And also the history room at the library where I do a lot of my research is closed. So yeah, I'm going to try to get creative with my next few episodes. And uh, maybe that's where you come in. I'll be gathering stories by phone for the foreseeable future. And uh, if you have a story that you think would be a good fit for the show, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a line at eastbayyesterday at gmail.com. And uh, if your story sounds interesting, we can set something up. If you're wondering about what kinds of stories I'm looking for, go back and listen to episode number 25 of this podcast. That one was called True Shorties, Volume 1. Uh, there was a story about a guy whose grandpa used to take him fishing for eels out on the Berkeley Pier, and they used some very unusual bait. Uh, there was a story about a guy who worked for the post office in West Oakland, and he had uh, some crazy things to say about bullets coming down and hitting the roof of the post office after people fired their guns in the air. Uh, there were a few other things in there, too. So, yeah, check it out, and if listening to that sparks any good memories or reminds you of any stories, please hit me up. Again, eastbayyesterday at gmail. And also, if you're looking for some suggestions on what to read right now in your uh, shelter-in-place quarantine, I published an article with some tips uh, that you can find in the updates section of my website. Eastbayyesterday.com is the address, and uh, the piece is called Quarantine Reading List. All right, as always, I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue, and you've been listening to East Bay Yesterday Q&A.